Please turn with me in your Bibles to our Old Testament passage, Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, we'll read verses 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Let's turn now to Romans chapter 7, and today we'll be reading the first six verses of this chapter. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only so long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, but if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers... You also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. Amen. You may be seated. You've heard people talk about the difference between uh, the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. And when people say that, what they're usually talking about is the difference between 
The law as it's written, the rules in black and white on paper, versus, on the other hand, the kind of general intent behind the law. And so you can imagine examples where this is plays out. Um, you may have heard the stories about, like, so one guy owes another guy some money, and he thinks it's not fair, I should owe him this money, the court was wrong, and they're, they're bitter about it. <coughs> and so they pull up with a truckload of pennies, and they dump the pennies on the guy's driveway. Um, and so they paid the money, but in a way it's going to be very costly for the person collecting the debt. And so some people would say, well, they kept the letter of the law, sort of a malicious way, but not the spirit of the law. Um, there's another way that it can go. Sometimes we'll get the idea, people will get, uh, we'll use this idea of the spirit of the law um, as kind of an excuse to say that the, the law doesn't really apply to me in this case. I can kind of get around it, kind of make the law a little more squishy or more vague than it really is. Oh, I'm going by the spirit of the law. And it can be an excuse not to do what the rule actually says. Okay, now, it is true, 100%. There is a difference between rules and principles. And it is very true that you can, indeed, uh, comply with a rule while still do something that's very wrong, obviously wrong. Uh, But something I kind of want to correct today and help you to, to see here is that that whole idea has nothing to do with what the Bible's talking about when it compares the letter of the law with the Spirit. Um, Now, if you feel a little lost at this point and you're thinking, I don't see anything about the letter versus the Spirit in this passage, um, you won't be saying that if if you're looking at the King James Version because there the the word letter appears. Here in the ESV, you can just look at the footnote on verse 6, footnote number 3. And, and it says that uh, where it says the old way of the written code, the written code literally in Greek is the letter. And so Paul is contrasting here the spirit and the letter. But when Paul uses those terms, spirit and letter, I want to give you the key to getting at what Paul means. The key is to make sure in your mind you see the word spirit with a capital S. A capital S. In other words, it's the Holy Spirit that he's talking about. He's not talking about some vague kind of principle behind the law or like that infamous Supreme Court decision, the emanations of the penumbras behind the law or something like that. Um, Letter versus spirit is about a difference in history. Before and after Pentecost. Before and after the Holy Spirit-empowered resurrection of Jesus Christ. Letter versus Spirit is about two different ways of serving God. The first being without Jesus. Helped only by the law of Moses. The second way the new way of the Spirit is serving God with Jesus, helped by the Holy Spirit. That's what letter versus Spirit is talking about. 
Now, obviously, I've kind of skipped to the end here. I've been talking about verse 6. That's our destination. That's where we're heading towards. But we need to work our way up to it. And so let me give you an outline before I just skip to the end. We're going to have three points this morning. First, the decisiveness of death. Second will be release and resurrection. And then third will be the letter and the spirit. Okay, so the decisiveness of death, release and resurrection, and then the letter and the spirit. So let's talk about the decisiveness of death. And here, um, obviously, we're gonna, when we talk about death, we're going to talk about weddings. That doesn't seem so obvious, does it? But, um, weddings are, of course, very joyful occasions. Uh, big celebration. There's music, they're dancing, friends, family, sharing in this great happiness of this couple who are entering this new life together. It is interesting, though. This is kind of a sidebar. Got this kind of same gathering of people to come to a wedding as you have come to a funeral. Think about that. There's a closer relationship between weddings and funerals than we might at first think. Isn't it interesting that, at least in some of the traditional versions of the wedding vows, there's an explicit mention of death till death do us part. Of course, today it's often put in a more positive way, as long as we both shall live. Um, But that's just another way of saying the same thing. It's bringing into view the end of life, and it's making the point that these two people are entering on a lifelong commitment. A lifelong commitment, but also a commitment that is only for this life. Now, I'm not the first person to make this point. I'm going to pass on to you what I've learned from others. That represents both a higher and a lower view of human love and marriage than a lot of people have today. On one hand, till death do us part stands against kind of a casual view of love and marriage as something that's almost disposable. Um, You may have heard that some people will change that marriage vow. Please never do this. We'll change it to say, as long as we both shall love. That is nonsense. What kind of foundation is that to build a life together on? That is not marriage. The whole point of marriage is that we are committing to stay together even when we don't feel like it. We're promising now to be loyal to each other then. Marriage is not built on feelings of affection. It is built on a covenantal promise, a loyalty that lasts even when feelings come and go. And so in that sense, the Christian view of human love and marriage is much higher than sort of throwaway, sentimental approach to marriage that's current in modern culture. Uh, Sometimes it's hard to tell what's really different between boyfriend and girlfriend versus husband and wife, what's, what's really different about those two relationships? What's really the difference between a breakup and a divorce? Our culture tends to treat those as, as different only in degree and maybe only slightly in degree. And the Bible says, no, no, marriage is a lifelong covenant that is not bound together by feelings but by vows. Now, on the other hand, there's also a strand of thinking in our culture that overvalues human love. 
that imagines that real love, true love, uh, binds two people together somehow for eternity. Um, And that sounds very attractive. It it sounds, um, it is, in fact, quite literally very romantic, maybe with a capital R. Um, But it's not biblical. It's It's not true. The Bible teaches that marriage is for the entirety of this life, but it is equally clear that marriage is only for this life. Remember when the Sadducees tried to trap Jesus, asking him about the hypothetical woman whose husbands keep dying. It's <laughs> kind, of, kind of scary. Uh, but she ends up having seven marriages, one after the other. And in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And they're like, gotcha. It's a major trick question. And Jesus says, I love his answer, you are quite wrong. Uh, he tells them there is no marriage in heaven. Marriage is for this life only. And that's a really important and underrated aspect of, of getting our marriages in perspective. Um, there's one uh, marriage book. Uh, this is John Piper's marriage book. I like the title of it. Full disclosure, I haven't actually read it yet, um, but I really like the title. It's This Momentary Marriage. The subtitle is A Parable of Permanence. Um, so you can kind of hear the point there. Marriage represents, it symbolizes the eternal love of God. Um, and in, in, in the way that it is permanent for this life, the way it endures through the ebbs and flows of changing feelings and life experiences, and that way it's more important than the way our culture treats it. But on the other hand, it can never rise to the level of an eternal love like God's. It is not designed to. God has designed human marriage to end at death. And this reminds us that we have to look beyond marriage. We have to look beyond marriage for our ultimate happiness. Because human love simply cannot bear the weight that people so often place upon it. I need you to make me ultimately happy. I need you, my spouse, to do something that only God can actually do. And it's a kind of idolatry. It places this crushing burden on our relationships that they cannot handle. And that sense of how marriage is temporary, um, that can actually be really freeing and life-giving to our marriages and enriching to our marriages as we learn in them to try to picture the love of God, but never to try to replace the love of God in each other's place in our hearts. It's something that even the best of marriages can never do because they're not supposed to. Okay, so we, we, we can't treat love and marriage as garbage, but we also must not treat them as God's. And till death do us part, uh, guard us against both those problems. Um, uh, Tim Keller's an example of somebody who makes this point in some of his teaching on marriage, that the gospel guards us against both too high and too low a view of marriage, um, throwing it away or treating it as an idol, something that's replacing a God's ultimacy in our heart. Okay, now I may have lost some of you again. You may be looking at the text and thinking, wait a second. What is he talking about? And I will freely admit, I've gone on a tangent on purpose, because I think it's a good uh, opportunity to talk about some of these principles regarding marriage. But I also want to admit, all this teaching about marriage is not the main point of this text. However, everything I've just said is very important to understanding Paul's illustration, which leads to his main point in this text. This perspective of the Bible on marriage 
is essential for getting the main point Paul is making here about our relationship to the law. So I haven't actually preached the text yet. I'm going to do that now. All right. What I've just hopefully gotten clear in all of our minds is that although marriage is for life, it is only for life. This means that death is decisive. When a spouse dies, there is a major change to the marriage relationship. It ends. And, of course, there's, a, there's no doubt a lifelong love that a bereaved spouse will treasure for the one that they have lost. But that covenantal union has been dissolved. And we know it has to be that way. It's the reason that a widowed person is free without any question of conscience to get married again if the Lord provides a suitable spouse for a second marriage. And that is Paul's very simple, straightforward illustration here in verse 2. A married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Okay, so as long as they both are living, there is a binding covenant between them. But when death intervenes, she is no longer bound. She's now free to marry somebody else, verse 3. So if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, well, there's a word for that. It's called adultery. But um, if her husband dies, well, then it's, it would be absurd to call it adultery for her to get married again. It simply isn't, because at that point, she's not married to her first husband anymore. That marriage bond was dissolved by death. So the, the point Paul's making here is that death is this decisive limit, a decisive limit that brings about a legal change, a change in relationship, a change in status, and a change in obligation. Uh, things that were true before are not true now in a very decisive and radical way. Obligations and duties that existed before death no longer apply once that death has happened. That's why this first point is the decisiveness of death. Now, what Paul is doing through this marriage word picture is he is trying to illustrate something for us. He's trying to build a bridge, helping us understand a change that has taken place in a different relationship. The relationship between God's people and the law of Moses. Verse 1 Backing up now from the illustration to the point it illustrates. Verse 1, don't you know that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? So that marriage relationship between that man and woman was established by the law of God. But the death of that man brought to a decisive end the legal obligations that existed between them. Now, we transition to verse 4, where Paul starts talking about us. So we're thinking, well, how does this apply to us then? Well, there's a pitfall we need to watch out for, first of all, a, a wrong way of reading this. It could be tempting, as some point have pointed out, to read verses 2 and 3 as an allegory, kind of like Pilgrim's Progress, where each character represents um, one particular kind of spiritual reality. So you could, if you go to asking, well, who does the woman represent? 
Or who does the husband represent? Well, that gets confusing because on the one hand, Paul says that uh, we have died in union with Christ, and so in that sense, we're like the husband because he's the one who died in the in the in the story. But on the other hand, Paul says, well, we've been freed up for a new relationship, and in that sense, we're like the woman because she's the survivor who's able to marry again. And so we'll we'll get really confused if we try to look for this one to one correspondence between the characters and ourselves. So. The key to understanding this is to see Paul is making a more general point here. The more general point, again, that death is decisive. That it brings about a decisive change in relationships and legal obligations. That death has the impact of freeing someone from an exclusive commitment that used to limit them. Death is able to end that exclusive commitment and create a new freedom for an entirely new exclusive relationship to be forged instead. That's the point. So the point is not you are the woman or you are the man. The point is death has intervened and brought about this decisive change. Okay, verse 4 then. Now we're warming up to the point. We're getting to ourselves now and our place in all of this. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Now, this is a persistent theme in Paul's letters that you have died, which is the first time you hear it is really disorienting. Wait a second. That's news to me. I think I'm still breathing. I think my heart's still beating. I have to remember what Paul means here. Again, this is a kind of a trope he uses throughout his letters. This is closely related to what we already talked about in chapter 6, where he says you died in another sense. You died to sin. This is all bound up in the concept we've talked about before called union with Christ. Union with Christ. It's this close relationship you have with Jesus. Where what happened to Jesus counts as though it happened to you. Or to put it another way, you don't just benefit from what Jesus did for you. You don't just get something from Jesus that he hands over to you in salvation. Rather... God's word teaches that you participate. You participate in what Jesus did for you. And so from a God's eye point of view, when Jesus died, you died. In relationship with him, in union with him, you participated in that death of Jesus on the cross. Think about God standing above the flow of time and filling all time. God who takes in at a glance all of time at once. God saw you and loved you in connection with his son Jesus when Jesus hung on the cross. When that happened to Jesus, God was counting Jesus' death as your death. Now, later in your own life, of course, you and I don't stand outside of time. I was like, well, I wasn't there on Golgotha. Well, or obviously you were born much later. It was much later that you actually came to faith in Christ, that that death of Jesus actually became part of your life experience. But now that you have trusted in Christ, now that the Holy Spirit has bound you together with him in this living way in your present, you can say, I have been crucified with Christ. When Jesus died, I died. 
His death brings about a decisive change for me. A break with everything that came before. The change that happens when you're joined to Jesus Christ is as decisive and radical as death. That's the point. Now in chapter 6, again, we saw that how that participation in Christ's death brought about a break between you and sin, the power of sin to enslave you. Well, what Paul's saying here is very closely related to that. Your participation in Christ's death means also that there is a break between you and the law of Moses. Now, you have to understand, in this section of Romans, sin and the law are very closely related in Paul's mind. So to say you've died to sin and that you've died to the law, um, those are very closely related statements. The law, um, let's think about this. He's not saying there's something wrong with God's laws, though the law is sinful. But here's how the law works. The law tells sinners what they ought to do but it doesn't help us to obey. The law can only point its finger. You can imagine that. In in seminary, they tell you never point your finger at the congregation because, well, I'm trying to show you what the law does. So the law says, here's the right thing to do, and then it says, you haven't done it. That's what the law does, okay? It says, here's the right thing to do, and you haven't done it. But it doesn't give you any kind of helping hand to actually carry out that obedience, There's another level deeper that all of this goes. Remember, I've said before that as sinners, we have line-crossing hearts. Remember, that's what transgression means. It means stepping across the line of God's law. And remember, we've talked about how God's law comes along, and it draws all of these lines, and our sinful hearts look at that and say, yep, I'm going to step across that one. I'm going to step across that one. I'm going to step across that one, too. It's all of these new opportunities for that sin to find concrete expression in breaking actual commands of God. That's what verse 5 is getting at. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Now, the law doesn't make us sinful, but it does offer us a whole lot of opportunities to sin. And then once we've done that, once we've broken it, it then simply points out to us the truth. Look at what you've done. So that interplay between our sin and God's commands, that's what Paul means when he talks about being captive to the law. It's not that there's something wrong with God's law, it's that there's something wrong with us. We are stuck. We hear what the law is saying, we know the right thing to do, we just don't have the power, we don't have the wherewithal to keep it. And so we come to experience the law as an impossible burden. Again, not because there's something wrong with it, because there's something wrong with us. And so for sinners, this is about our relationship to the law. For sinners, the law holds us captive. It holds us trapped. We are trapped in this cycle of hearing what we're supposed to do, but not being able to do it. And then being reminded that we haven't done it. And it's, it's crushing, it's disheartening. And things just can't go on that way. And so the good news of this passage is that Paul's telling us is that there, there is hope for sinners who were in that position. The hope is that there has been a death. 
There's been a death that has decisively changed your relationship to the law of God. Before, it was this master commanding and condemning you because the only thing you could ever do was break it. But that's not true for you anymore. Why? Because Jesus died for you and you belong to Jesus and so you participate in Jesus' death. And therefore, just as surely as that widow's relationship to her husband changed, so surely your relationship to the law of God has changed. Why? Because that death has intervened and changed everything. There's more to it than that, though. We can't stop there. If we just stopped with the death of Jesus then this supposedly good news would be uh, woefully incomplete. If you just say, well, Jesus died, you died. The end. And, and the curtain falls. like the end of Hamlet. Everybody dies. The end. And down comes the curtain. Um, that's a tragedy. The gospel is not a tragedy. That is not the end of the story. It's not the end of the gospel. There hasn't just been a death There has also been what? There has been a resurrection. And you participate in that resurrection life just as much as you participate in that death. Yes, that old relationship to the law, that old relationship of raw command and condemnation, that has ended. But it has also been replaced by something else, by a new relationship. Now you belong to another You belong to him who has been raised from the dead. You participate not just in Jesus' cross. You participate in Jesus' resurrection. And it's that resurrection life of Jesus that is now powerfully working in your heart. It's enabling you to do what you could not do before. It is enabling you to bear fruit for God, Paul says. To bear fruit for God. It's this great irony that being freed from the law doesn't make you keep it less. It makes you keep it more. Um, Because when you're enslaved to it, all you can do is break it. But once you've been freed from it, you start keeping it. See, when when you die to the law, you don't end up as as some kind of just uh, like free agent. Now you're just all completely on your own as this sovereign individual figuring out, now now what do I do? You remember being the master of your fate and the captain of your soul like we talked about last time. And remember from last time, we agreed with Bob Dylan that you're going to have to serve somebody. But now you get to serve God in a new way. You serve God in a new way, not in the old way of the written code, the old way of the letter, literally, You're going to serve him now in the new way of the Spirit. And remember, that is Spirit with a capital S. It's not a way of making God's law more squishy or easier to get around or less strict in some way. No, it's saying, now you have the power to keep it because the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, has brought new resurrection life in your heart. You get to serve God in a new way. This has nothing to do with rules versus principles or 
black and white versus gray. It has everything to do with where does the power come from actually to live for God. Before, you were supposed to do it, but you couldn't because of your sin. Now, in Christ, you get to do it, and you actually can do it because of the Holy Spirit. And so without Jesus, all you have is God's law telling you you must and you can't. But with Jesus, you have God's Spirit telling you you can and you will by my grace. So the resurrection life of Jesus is now energizing your heart and you're not stuck anymore. You can serve God from the heart now. You, you can love him. You can obey him. And, and you don't do that to to earn his love. The point here is that God already loves you. You're not doing this to win his approval. That's living under the law, trying to live up to God's standards so that he'll approve of you. No, God already approves of you in his son, Jesus Christ, who's perfectly obeyed the law on your behalf. But now, because you belong to him, all you want to do is you want to show him how much you love him. Look at everything he's done for me. In Christ, what else could I do now but love and serve him with everything that's in me? The letter and the spirit. I hope that I have hammered home for you a very different way of reading those words in Scripture than the way they're usually used in everyday life. This is Very good news that Paul's giving to us. Not that God's law has changed. Not that it has gotten more vague. It's that we have changed. It's that God has changed us in the great change of Jesus' death and resurrection for sinners. It's the good news that when you trust in Jesus, you get not only the free gift of forgiveness, although you do get that, Glory be to God, the free and full forgiveness of sins through the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus for you. But that's not where the gospel starts. It's just where it begins. You also get this. You get the power of the Holy Spirit to serve God in a new way that you never could have done before. And that's good news for God's people. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this full gospel message, for the whole gospel of the whole Lord Jesus Christ for sinners. Um, who did his work not only so that we could be declared righteous, but also so we could be made holy. Not only to justify us, but also to sanctify us. Um, not only to give us the, this free forgiveness of sins, but to give us this new power, this new way to serve you. We pray you please help us to catch that vision. We pray that you would fill our imaginations with the goodness and uh, greatness of this love that you have shown to us, the glory of this work that Christ has done for us. And we pray that this would become the pattern of our lives, the inspiration for how we want to get up and and go about our daily business knowing that we have this new resurrection life of Jesus at work in our hearts, that a death has intervened to break for us the old way 
of relating to the law and all of its command and condemnation, but to serve you now in the new way of the Spirit with a capital S. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.